Thanks for downloading this second of two episodes of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording at the fourth Mad World Summit, which has become the global go-to solutions-focused conference and exhibition dedicated to turning talk into action, creating cultures of care, and embedding mental health and well-being as a strategic business priority. My name is Russell Goldsmith. This is actually the third time we've brought the podcast to the event. And once again, I'm going to be chatting to a number of the speakers from today's conference, and we hope that through these short conversations, we'll be able to provide you with a real flavour and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed here today. So I'm delighted to be joined by Gary Rauscher, Executive Vice President, Head of Product Marketing and Merchandising at ASICS EMEA, and uh, Professor Brendan Stubbs, Senior Clinical Lecturer at King's College London. You guys have both just come off stage after presenting a keynote on the topic, Measurement Matters, the Impact of Movement on Our Minds. Uh, Gary, do you want to just give us a top line overview of uh, what you just spoke about? We just introduced the ASICS Movement for Mind program, which is a movement-based program that makes it incredibly accessible for all workers to move more during the day to improve their mental well-being. And uh, we have tested this rigorously together with Dr. Brendan Stubbs from King's College London, and we shared the results, uh, which, uh, which we were incredibly pleased to see just how significant a difference this program can make. Brendan, you led the scientific uh, trial on, on, on it. Can you just talk us through what was involved? So really what we wanted to do is do the gold standard science. So most sort of people, if they're evaluating wellbeing programs, may do like a survey, a collection of surveys, or just ask people how they're doing before and after. But we wanted to do the gold standard, which is a randomized controlled trial. And essentially this is the only research design method by which you can move from correlation to actually saying, does something causally improve people's wellbeing? And what this essentially involved was recruiting 189 people across eight individual employers engaging in the Movement for Mind programme. And everybody completed these internationally validated outcome measures and well-being and several other metrics. Then they were randomly allocated to the Movement for Mind group on a random basis or the control group. So that randomization process reduces bias and the control group means that you can compare what happens with the intervention on the Movement for Mind program versus a control group. And this is the robust way to say whether something works. And both groups were followed up to the halfway point, so just after four weeks where we repeated the measures and the control group carried on as usual. The Movement for Mind group carried on with the intervention and at the end of the study. We focus on a primary outcome measure, and good research focuses on one specific measure and doesn't go fishing for 20 or 30 individual metrics. And we primarily said we want to improve people's mental well-being. So we did that via the Warwick and Edinburgh well-being scale, and we found that the Movement for Mind group compared to the control group had an improvement of just over three points, which is not only quote-unquote statistically significant, but is also clinically meaningfully important in terms of that difference which we saw over the course of this time period. We also saw reductions in sedentary behaviour of around an hour a day in the movement mind group versus a control group. So the benefits of movement extended beyond the programme itself. We also saw a 10% increase in people's objective levels of physical activity 
and improvements in people's mental health too. So we saw a wide range of benefits which we can attribute to the success of the Movement for Mind programme because of the robust research process and the comparison versus a control group who were the same in all other characteristics but just didn't take part in the programme and that is the power of the research and what we found. There's obviously quite a lot of apps out there to better your mental health and, and everything. How, how does this compare to those and the similar studies that have, have taken place before? Interestingly, there was uh, about a year or two ago, if we're specifically talking about apps, there was something called a systematic review, which is essentially looking at all publicly available apps that focus on wellness and well-being. They found 1,089 apps which were there to try and improve well-being whether it be through a movement-based program or whether it be through helping you sleep better or meditate, etc., etc. And when you looked at the detail and said, have they tested these apps? 2%, 27, had tested their app on individual people. And all of them, virtually all of them said, we're evidence-based, we're backed by evidence. Well-intentioned people, well-intentioned apps, but 2% had tested them. And if you looked at that 2%, what did they do? And if we're getting a bit nerdy on the science, the science wasn't really of a standard where it was a randomised control trial and it had good sample size. It was often a pre- and post-test study, or people did surveys, or used limited numbers of people or just did it over the course of a week. So the evidence base for apps more generally is quite limited, particularly when you look at various different aspects, such as we did within the Movement for Mind programme. I bet someone in your role, that must drive you mad seeing those kind of studies. Well, it, it, when the marketing doesn't match the science, yeah. yes. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Gary, why was it so important for ASICS to carry out the study? Well, actually, this is at the heart of who we are and what we do. So ASICS is actually an acronym for the Latin phrase anima sana and corpore sano, which means a sound mind and a sound body. So from the days that our company was founded, we've always been about trying to uplift people and uplift the moods and the spirits and the mental well-being of people through sport and movement. We obviously heard just some of the top-line stats before. Can you go into more qualitative analysis? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously we were very pleased with the quantitative study and research that Brendan did, but one of the things that also pleased us enormously was to hear some of the qualitative feedback from the participants. We know that one of the real barriers to participation is, in fact, motivation, and so therefore it's incredibly important that the content is engaging, people enjoy it, and it's something that they look forward to. What we heard from people was 86% of the participants said they thoroughly enjoyed it, 71% said that they felt happier as a result, more than 70% said that they were moving more specifically because of the program, and perhaps most powerfully of all, 99% said that they would recommend it to a colleague or a co-worker. Brilliant. And is this going to be available for anyone to download? Yeah, well, we're on a mission to help all people everywhere achieve a sound mind and a sound body. So yes, we're making it freely accessible to all people. All people need is to have a phone, a pair of headphones, some comfortable clothing, and some great footwear, which, of course, we hope would be ASIC's footwear, but we're happy for it to be anywhere. Of course. Well, brilliant. Uh, Gary Rauscher and uh, Professor Brendan Stubbs, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you indeed, Russ. So joining me now is uh, Debbie Bullock, UK wellbeing lead at Aviva, who took part in a panel discussion earlier today about future-proofing workplace wellbeing. Debbie, what was the main message that was uh, shared in that session? So in the panel, we were talking very much about how we might keep wellbeing at the forefront of 
people post-pandemic. So there was an element of using social well-being as a hook to engage people in the typical elements of physical, mental and financial well-being and bringing people together in that sense of community. We talked about the science of well-being and how actually treating us as humans and simplifying the well-being offering. And if you can think about well-being of the person and less about the individual elements you create a holistic whole organization approach to it and then I specifically was talking about the element to do with hybrid working and how we might need to look at how well-being is different for different people but also really importantly how we make roles and jobs good for people's well-being before anything else and that really plays to the strength that of I often describe well-being as a three-legged stool So the first leg being an individual desire to want to get involved with well-being and the second being benefits that an organisation can offer. And those are quite prevalent and a lot of organisations do that. And the third leg and the one that really underpins it all for me is culture. So if you have that third leg in place, the well-being programme and support is stable and sustainable. And that's about diversity and inclusion, it's about good job design, it's about understanding that it's a collection of things that support well-being because if you haven't got the right culture but you've got great benefits and personal desire then those things aren't going to get used but similarly if you've got a great culture and a great personal desire but no benefits to use so all three legs need to be there really and I think The bit that a lot of wellbeing practitioners don't do is look at that culture piece. Look at how do we make a job good to start with, with clear accountabilities, with a sense of purpose and with empowerment. So taking on board everything that you've just talked through there, how are you implementing all that in the work that you're doing at Aviva? So from an Aviva perspective, we are looking at how we build well-being into job design, into organisation and business architecture when we're looking at the structure of our organisation. And we're not perfect yet at Aviva by any means. We're learning still and we're evolving. But building that into that element of role and job design We're working closely across the people function and across the business to embed it so people realise that it's more than a well-being functions job to do those kind of things. It's everybody's role. And really importantly, embedding it in the culture means getting our line managers and our people leaders on board and engaged and supporting them in understanding how they can help build well-being for the people that they lead. And how are you measuring the impact that the programmes are, are having? I think impact is the hardest thing to measure. So it's quite easy to measure engagement in wellbeing programs and activities and support, but the actual impact that has is quite difficult to measure. So there's employee engagement surveys that we do, which includes questions like Aviva values my health and wellbeing, my manager supports my health and wellbeing, and we're tracking really good positive scores on that in the recent survey that's just come up. More than 86% globally of our colleagues believe their manager is doing a good job of supporting their well-being just out of interest how many colleagues are you talking about here so we've got 15 and a half thousand colleagues in the uk so a significant number Um, and different departments have got higher scores so that 86 percent is a kind of average i think what's really important is stories stories are a really good way of tracking and understanding the impact and sharing those lived experiences and those 
how people have used the wellbeing services and how Aviva is supporting their overall wellbeing, whether that be through job design, through policies like equal parental leave, or that wider piece. Those lived experiences and stories are as strong as monitoring impact and one of the best ways we've got of monitoring impact. Now, I know you've been at Aviva your entire career and I'll let you decide if you want to share how long that's been. But what what I thought would be good to know is how you've seen this kind of role evolve, especially given that you are now the UK wellbeing lead there, because I I think we can safely assume that that role wasn't there when maybe you started in the business. No, so um, I've worked for Aviva and its predecessors since I was 16, since I left school, as you say. So various roles, that's one of the benefits of working for a large organisation. And I think wellbeing has been there at Aviva and other large organisations, but maybe not called that. So quite often organisations might have had sports and social clubs, Back in the day when people used to take work outings to the seaside, you know, those kind of activities. So well-being in some form has always been there, maybe just not called that. And it has evolved and there's a lot more focus on it. And employees are looking for support. We spend a third of our life at work in most cases. So employees are starting to want and and know to to work for an organisation that supports their well-being. So... It has changed and evolved over time in terms of what it's meant. I think there's always been an element of it in the 30 plus years. I'll I'll leave it there. The 30 plus years that I've worked uh, for the organisation. But that kind of care has been there. We've just maybe not badged it well-being. And I think there's a greater focus on elements like mental health now, which, you know, there needs to be. We need to remove the stigma around issues such as mental health, menopause, fertility, and all those things that are badged as well-being. And our age of ambiguity research actually suggests that people want more of that connection with people and with their employer. And that's what they expect an employer to provide now. Well, you're clearly passionate about the role. So, yeah, it's in good, it sounds like it's in very good uh, hands. It is. I must admit, out of all the roles I've had in those years at Aviva, this is my favourite and it makes it a joy to get out of bed on a morning. Fantastic. Well, Debbie Bullock, thank you so much for joining the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. So joining me now are Lee McNamara, Group Head of Internal Comms and Culture at DFS, and Gareth Fryer, co-founder of Fika, the uh, mental fitness app. These guys are talking a little later in a session about preventative culture. Uh, Lee, let's start with you. Uh, Let's just set the scene on the challenges you face at DFS uh, when it comes to mental health of your employees. Yeah, so we're a retailer. We sell upholstery products, sofas. You've probably heard of us, that kind of thing. We are actually vertically integrated. So as well as selling sofas, we make them and we deliver them as well. When you start to look at the gender makeup and the gender specific challenges that manufacturing and the logistics industries face they're male dominated businesses right what that brings is a certain special set of issues when it comes to mental health particularly when it comes to men's mental health what you find is that problems are more acute in the demographics that work predominantly in those areas for us and the people that need the help most have the least propensity to go and seek it out so we're very very clear that we have a duty of care to our employees to make sure that we equip them with tools, techniques and support that mean that we move past the discussions around mental health and how you can have good mental fitness because there's a a marked difference but you know having good mental health is a result of being mentally fit right good mental health outcomes are something that you can get by practicing your mental fitness and that's what we're doing working with Fika and what I mean by duty of care if we bring on someone who's going to work in our warehouse for example they have to lift sofas right and some of those sofas are pretty heavy we wouldn't just go 
off you go, go and lift sofas. Yeah, we would make sure that we trained them and that they knew how to safely lift sofas and safely conduct themselves in that environment. And yet we are we're getting better through the work that we're doing with FICA. But loads of organisations don't take that sort of approach around that day one duty of care when it comes to mental fitness because we you know stresses strains anxiety we all go through it at work at home but we don't do anything to help colleagues day to day have really good outcomes through mental fitness that you can as i said train and kind of and, and, and get better at and equip yourselves with those tools and techniques yeah. and just so we understand how many colleagues do you have in the business we've got about six thousand colleagues across the uk ireland spain and the netherlands so um, we're working around how we take a very different approach to this than just allowing access to a product or an app and that's what i'm here today talking talking yeah. with gareth about. nice cue let's yes. uh, let's bring gareth in uh, do, do you want to just give us a little intro to fika and also how you uh, started working with uh, lee's team yeah sure so we're, we're four years into our journey at fika at mental fitness both nick and i come from a background of building products and services for other people we both have our own personal stories with mental health decline and uh, nick's best friend ben died by suicide a few years ago and uh, myself i've been diagnosed with cancer twice and had a burnout in the middle sandwiched in the middle of those things so we left and decided decided to put our skills to doing something more meaningful and understanding how do we prevent the decline of mental health, not treat the decline of mental health. So what we've identified is that actually there are about 100 psychological techniques that if you use them and know how to apply them, you can manage your mental fitness. You can be better prepared to deal with challenges before they happen. Yet when it comes to mental health, we typically think of it as something that we need to react to and that good mental health is to do with, uh, basically a good mental health means not being mentally ill. That isn't the science of how mental health actually works. Uh, So we've developed a formal training platform. It's education-based, it's performance psychology-based. It's all about helping people build skills that are actually essential for the future of work. It's not just about mental health, it's about everyday performance to bring that kind of whole self to work. So through that platform, we help organizations like DFS and many uh, education institutions, universities, employers, etc., to put those skills into their cultures to help people you know, have those sustainable positive mental fitness habits uh, for the long term mental fitness is you know is increasing its awareness and i think that's a great thing because actually if you look at mental health and compare it to the physical health spectrum because we have high literacy in physical health we're taught how it works we understand positive physical fitness we know that that's good we we don't blame the external factors for our own physical health we blame ourselves for our own physical health because we know that we have accountability for it yet when it comes to our mental health actually um, i think there's some great stats from the the welcome trust only 26 percent of people believe that globally that science can make a difference to their mental health through our own platform and through a, a scale we'll be launching today, we've helped organisations understand that circa 40% of your employees don't believe that their mental health is a thing that they can have any control over. So they're never going to go near a, a proactive well-being initiative because they don't even believe that they can make a difference to it. And that's why we have to fundamentally change the way we think about skills for work to help people perform. Lee, do you want to talk us through how you're working with Gareth's team? Yeah, so we're, we're working with Gareth and the team to do a few things. One is, so it's a real learning for, for us as an organisation, because of what we're talking about, the narrative around it's not very well known. So we're kind of swimming against the tide a little bit on that one anyway, but that's fine. So what we're trying to do is understand how we can take the learnings and products that Fika can provide us and properly embed them in our organisation. You know, we've deployed the app already and we've got higher than sort of industry average usage which is a big tick 
but there's still a massive proportion of colleagues that aren't engaging with the tools and techniques that make their lives better. So how can we take those tools and techniques and move away from encouraging colleagues to go and access them via an app, which is a great, easy, democratised way to get access to it, but blend it into everything that we do. So how we induct colleagues, we're taking the tools and techniques of FICA and we're blending that into our induction process. So colleagues just get more mentally fit just by going through our induction process, for example. And we're thinking, okay, so when if I've just got a promotion and I'm transitioning from being not being a line manager to being a line manager, you know, no one's born with great leadership skills. So how can we, through again, through tools and techniques, help blend in aspects of mental fitness into the support and wraparound care that we give our managers as they transition from one job into another? And that's what first actually attracted us to Fika was the productization of it and how they wrapped it around different aspects of it. So, you know, I'm here today. I'm going to be talking with with Gareth in a little bit. Luckily, I can waffle on, so I'm, I'm, I'm generally all right. But what happens if actually I get really, I get quite anxious about this, which, by the way, is a perfectly normal thing to feel. Anxiety isn't bad. Stress isn't bad. But how can we then use that feeling to help me prepare better? That's what FICA does. It try, we're trying to change the narrative around, oh, I'm anxious, that's bad. Well, no, it isn't. Actually, it's perfectly natural in certain circumstances to feel anxious. It's what your body does to make you prepare it's perfectly normal to feel stressed. It's what your body does to help you get ready to perform. So how can we help have better conversations about these aspects and equip colleagues with different tools and techniques to a certain extent without them even knowing about it? Because it's just how we help and support colleagues through joining our business, thriving in our business, and building a good career in our business. That's what we're trying to do with Fika, as well as give them access to the app. Gareth, are there any other key challenges that some of your other partners are facing that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I think everyone's facing a similar challenge, right? I don't think anyone in this room would doubt that positive mental well-being is a good thing. You know, it's well documented, the, the, the things are there. But we're in a, what is it, circa 40% of people are thinking of moving jobs within the next 18 months. You know, the term rage quitting has become a real thing where people now, they don't have the patience because there's so many jobs out there. Just one day they just turn around and they just leave. And actually, you know, we talk so much about resilience, but the definition of resilience is, is bouncing back from having a problem, right? That's the psychological definition of it. That can't be the best we aim for in mental health. To use Lee's analogy before, we don't train people to heal quicker from you know, how to lift a sofa if they hurt themselves we train them how to not hurt themselves in the first place yet with with mental health we don't do that and i think the, the key point that everyone is facing is a 87 percent of organizations according to latest research offer well-being services 27 percent of people use them and we've got to face into that commercially as an organization as a business you want to know that you're making an impact a positive impact and when you face into the stats that Gareth just mentioned... It's actually 23%. 23% from a, from, a, from a mental health kind of well-being app point of view. Unless you're willing to have a better and different conversation about that, you're not reaching the colleagues that need the help the most, which is why deploying an app is only ever going to get you so far. And talking about mental health is only ever going to get you so far because we talk about mental health at crisis point, as Gareth said. How do we talk about how you don't get there in the first place? We don't have enough of those conversations. And I said at the start, we're swimming against the tide a bit, but ultimately we've got to start trying to change the narrative and our approach. Otherwise, you know, I'll be here in 10 years' time and we'll still be going, oh, 23%, that's not very good, is it? And, and how do we change it so it's actually a recognition that mental health is amazing? 
the best of us as humans comes from the mental health spectrum. We evolved to be the dominant force of this planet because of our mental health. We're not the most physical, not the strongest. We can form shared belief systems. Our anxiety mechanism is about planning for the future and see things that haven't happened yet. We're one of the only things that can do that. It's like, yet we don't celebrate things in our, these things as skills in our culture. What you see is the World Economic Forum has finally recognized these skills as essential for the future of work. If you think about the post-COVID world that we're in, we're going through transition periods all the time. I'm having to connect differently. I'm having to bounce back. I'm having to think differently about everything. That is the epitome of mental fitness and those skills are essential for work. And Lee and I were talking about this earlier. I want to make really clear. When we talk about mental fitness, we're not saying that everyone needs to be Adonis-like pinnacles of mental fitness because the reality is if we take the physical fitness analogy, none of us are. We accept Speak that most... Speak for yourself, mate. <laughs> of course, mate. We, we accept that most of us are a bit unfit and that's okay. Exactly, and we, but we're, we accept that we're all working on it because most of us, like... We know that being being the pinnacle of physical fitness is really hard, yet when it comes to mental health, we've missed that entire connotation that is actually, we're, and you know, if you look at the stats as well, mental illnesses haven't increased since 1990. It's a percentage of population growth. What we have is a huge increase in poor fitness. And it just, we just need to change the narrative around, around this spectrum. Lee, you, how is the programme going? Are you measuring it on a constant basis? Yeah, we are. Like I, I mentioned just a, a little bit ago, we're really, really pleased with how colleagues are taking to interacting and using the app but can we do better yes we can we're above industry average so we're well happy with that but we're not patting ourselves on the back going job done so what we're working hard at now is how we can from the very top of our leadership from our sort of ceos community down start to get them a bit gend up on it help them be more okay talking about it and understanding and just genuinely getting better literacy about it so we can start thinking about how we equip leaders to lead their teams and have really good conversations around these topics and feel comfortable in having these conversations and doing that alongside offering the products via the app and also blending that in that starts to feel a little bit more like actual driving cultural change as opposed to going there's some support there if you need it. So we are, we are more interested in creating an organisation that is mentally fit than kind of going after a, a well-being agenda, which is, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing it, it's very important, but if you're really going to make a difference, it, it takes a lot of hard work, it's uncomfortable, pushes people to places they might not necessarily want to go, but that's what change is, and that's what we're trying to bring about at DFS. Well, listen, guys, good luck with that. Good luck with your session later. Uh, but for now, uh, Lee McNamara and Gareth uh, Fryer, thanks for joining the podcast. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm thrilled to now welcome to the podcast Henry Jones and Elisabetta Camilleri, the CEO and chair, respectively, of Togetherall, one of the lead sponsors here at Madworld. Henry, let's start. Do you want to give us a quick overview of the Togetherall platform and, and the services that you're providing? So Togetherall provides a digital peer-to-peer community that creates a sense of belonging, sharing and supporting for our members. What is very unique about the community, it is moderated 24 hours a day by a clinically led team of mental health professionals that make sure that it is a safe, non-judgmental, positive environment. And ultimately, if individuals on the platform, which does not happen too often, are identified as at risk, will make sure that they are looked after and get to a safe space. Zabetta, you've just finished chairing a session and let me get this right it was called anticipating risks and keeping staff safe what works in well-being do you, do you want to just talk us through what what you were discussing there 
Yes, it was a very interesting conversation, actually. The focus was on the need for employers to provide a very safe environment, not just from a physical point of view, or else we continue talking about data safety, but from a well-being point of view. It's the importance of all employers to realize that a high percentage of their employees could potentially be at risk. Together all research just highlighted that 12 out of 1,000 people employees are currently at risk as opposed to, for example, only three out of each 1,000 in universities. And these are big numbers. When we're talking about this high level of numbers, it's not just the employees themselves, but the whole group of people around them, their colleagues, their customers, their suppliers and their families who are all impacted every time something happens. So with all this in mind, the importance is to create a level of rigor and evidence in identifying which solutions to choose to put as part of your overall ecosystem and provide the support each of employee might need. Are companies doing enough to support their employees? It's a very big question. One could say it's never enough, but what is obvious is that all employers are now very aware of the importance of supporting their employees and their mental health and well-being. There's been a big cultural shift. Um, uh, we're seeing a move from what one would have said was a focus on uh, traditional uh, metrics on uh, productivity and now we realize that actually having a group of employees that are healthy physically and mentally is as important and the importance of understanding the fact that the underlying risks are real and we all need to do something about it. Henry, you just asked us a better about our companies doing enough, but how at risk are their employees? Yeah, so uh, last year we looked at our data and we had over 100,000 members use our platform. And we work across various different sectors, looking at various different sorts of data. One of the things that we do look at is what is the proportion of the population that is flagged at risk by our clinical team. So they are either at risk to themselves or regarded as at risk to other individuals. And interestingly, the data that we saw was the population, and this included students, this included the military, this included the general population, the population that had the highest level of at risk, which was 12 out of every thousand members was the corporate employees, which is probably explained a lot by COVID and isolation, but it is something that businesses need to take very seriously. Later this afternoon, you're also going to be hosting an, an, another roundtable, and that's going to be on the power of peer-to-peer -peer networks in employee mental health. What, what are you hoping that those attending that session are going to take away? Yeah, I think what we're hoping to cover is, is two issues. Is one is how do you build a mental health ecosystem or toolkit that provides all levels of support for individuals that is well connected and joined up and works fundamentally and also the role of peer-to-peer -peer in that toolkit whether that be physical whether that be digital you know ultimately we believe that community and the power of people supporting people creates huge benefit around a sense of belonging support the benefits of sharing lived experience, etc. And it's a very scalable and useful part of any solution. And so I think 
what we're hoping to get out of the group is how are they thinking about building their ecosystems? How do they share best advice between them? And what are their thoughts about how building peer-to-peer, which is very clinically proven, into that ecosystem? So, Besta, what, what are you hoping you know, is the big call to action that you want the audience here today and also our listeners to take away from Madwell? The fact that identifying the right mix of solutions for your employees is absolutely key. We are all aware that mental health and well-being is a challenge for an increasingly number of people. The good thing is nowadays we're more vocal about it, but the risk is still there. So it's imperative for employers to understand the level of risk within the organization and provide the support that each and every person within their organization needs. Henry, if uh, listeners want to find out a little bit more about the work that you're doing, where's the best place for them to go? Probably the best place is to go to our website, which is www.togetherall.com. Very simple. Uh, Henry Jones and Sabetta Camilleri, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm now joined by Professor Jonathan Passmore, Senior VP uh, Coaching at Coach Hub. Jonathan is presenting a session shortly on managing hybrid teams and its risks. Uh, welcome, Jonathan. Do you want to just talk through what you're going to be speaking about? Great to join you today. I'm going to be talking about the risks that employees face as a result of our changing world of work as we move increasingly to a hybrid type of working environment and how organizations can identify the potential risks and what they can do to try and mitigate them. Now, obviously, Coach Hub, you're a coaching organization. Define coaching for us, because I'm guessing some people may or may not understand it exactly. So there's sometimes confusion about what coaching is. So for us, it's about helping each individual to have some clarity about the goals that they're setting for themselves to help them to achieve the best possible version of themselves. So in our conversations, it's about encouraging reflection, for individuals to become more self-aware, to enable those individuals to take more personal responsibility and to become more choiceful. So the role of the coach in that conversation that I have on our digital platform is exploring the choices and options that they have, the pros and cons of each of those choices and agree a plan of action that enables them to move forward, both in terms of performance but also about well-being. Yeah, and you just touched on there the fact that you're a digital platform. How does that differ from physically meeting and and being coached one-to-one? Well, in a remote working and a hybrid working world, or in a world where you've got a geographically distributed workforce, if you're a global organization, having an organization who works with you as a partner, providing coaching means that we can scale that across the world and we can meet our clients wherever they are in the world through the app that we uh, enable and through all the learning content that supports each of those individual coaching conversations. So people can come along, be matched with a coach through our app to identify the best coach for them and then have as many coaching conversations as they wish or need to progress their goals. Let's come back to the the session that you're going to be talking about later. Can you go into a bit more depth about the risks that you highlighted and also the coaching side of it, how is that going to help organisations actually manage the well-being of their, of their employees? Yeah, remote working about. brings some really interesting challenges for individuals that people may be working at home and having to balance care responsibilities alongside doing their job. They may have the challenges of their workplace being in a bedroom or being in a flat 
where they may not have all of the organisation's resources available to them. But fundamentally, individuals are detached from that social world of work that we benefit when we go in and we meet our colleagues at the water cooler, in the canteen, or when we're having a cup of coffee. And also that we're having frequent conversations in teams or with our boss about the goals and objectives that we're working towards. So having a digital partner available to you on tap to have those conversations, both helping you to stay focused, to move forward with your performance, but also supporting you with that wider range of who you are as an individual, the ups and downs, the emotions that we experience as a result of all the other complexities in our life can be a real transformational act. And not surprisingly, we have seen significant interest over the last 18 months as organisations put this as the missing piece of the jigsaw into place as part of their HR strategy. Jonathan, if uh, listeners want to find out more information, where do they need to go? Click on to coachhub.com and check out some of our services uh, or reach out and link in to me, Jonathan Passmore, on LinkedIn. Excellent. Professor Jonathan Passmore, thank you for joining the show. Thank you. So I'm now joined by Tina Woods, co-founder and CEO of Business for Health and also a co-founder and director of the APPG for Longevity. Yes. Um, Tina, thanks for joining us. Do you want to just give us a a quick introduction to Business for Health? Sure. Business for Health was launched in November 2020, so we're quite new. Um, Social enterprise uh, that is essentially a coalition of businesses, but also um, other organizations who are really looking to augment the role of business to enhance and level up the health of the nation. We came out of uh, the all-party parliamentary group for longevity as a key recommendation of the Health of the Nation report that we launched in February 2020, right before COVID struck. And it was all to do with how we can achieve the government manifesto commitment of five extra years of healthy life expectancy while minimizing health inequalities. And of course, coming out of COVID, we can see that we really need to tackle the nation's health. We have to see it very, very differently. We need to move towards a preventative health model. We have a sickness culture at the moment. We really have to change that. And of course, there's a huge role for business to play uh, in key areas, which of course has been a, a focus of today's session in workforce health. You know, we clearly see a lot of businesses doing an enormous amount to help the, uh, the health of their employees. Um, so that's the first pillar of our framework for health that we launched as a report with the CBI on this uh, actually three days ago. The second and third pillars, the second pillar is the, the role of business in terms of products and services to deliver health improvements. The third pillar is actually the role of business in communities and wider societies. So we're taking a three-pillar approach, kind of taking a lesson really from the climate change experience, which is essentially 10 years ahead of us. We're saying health is wealth. You can't have economic prosperity without health and actually living healthier and longer is actually connected to the green agenda anyway so it's all completely interconnected so we're really looking at the route map how to achieve that index that we'd like to see develop a simple benchmarking tool to help organizations benchmark themselves in sort of improvement in terms of what they can do to do more in terms of population health how it could reduce impact on our health and care system because For example, the CBI, who we're working with really closely on this framework, they reckon that about 10 to 20% of the disease burden could be alleviated through business doing more in terms of workforce health in key areas like musculoskeletal, mental health is obvious. Nice to see that Sajid Javid is committed to addressing um, public health and mental health as part of his focus moving forward. He himself said that you can't level up the economy without leveling up health. That is completely our mission. 
but it's a long-term mission. So we've got a lot of work to do in the next two to three years, developing a methodology, testing it in the real world, working with our academic partners, but testing it in the real world, very agile, looking at what data matters in the private sector, what do we need to collect, in what format, how we can connect it up as part of a system change approach with the ONS Health Index, which is taking, which is you know our Office for National Statistics. We've got two members of our working group who are advising government on this health index, which measures health in three parameters, healthy people, healthy lives, and healthy places. That is mirrored in terms of our framework. So we see this as a big initiative. We need the collective might and power and collective energy from the business community and, and find the leaders who are going to help us. Um, and as part of that, we're going to obviously look at sectors that are already improving health but we're also going to be looking at sectors that are detracting from our health. So the food industry, for example, working with Henry Dimblebay, the national food strategy. How can we system shape the food industry so that we're producing less unhealthy foods, um, less ultra-high-post food we know is a big cause of the obesity crisis that we have, including in our children. So these are all the big areas that we're looking at. Wow. Um, if uh, those business leaders that you want to get involved, if they want to get involved with that, how, how do they do that then? So, I mean, the obvious place to start is just to visit our website, so www.businessforhealth, and that's F-O-R for health, .org. Our report is published on, on the website. There's contact details there. You can contact me, tina.woods at businessforhealth.org. The CBI you can contact, and, and indeed many of our members who are joining us, you can contact them through us because we see this as an army Absolutely. that we need to develop. <laughs> and and just, just out of interest, I mean, obviously we're, we're here, it's towards the end of the day now at, at Mad World. How have you felt the response from the delegates how's that been it's been fantastic and you know just at our think tank session you know we had many big leaders there you know from big organizations in fact one of our founding members axa health were there you know the ceo from axa health so i think the energy that you can see in the conference today i mean i was amazed a how many people are here yeah it's been great because of well and also the COVID numbers are shooting up you'd have thought there had been a few hesitant people but yeah. actually it just shows the commitment and the energy that you're getting because i think you know the time and that's a really a huge point to make is that the time is now. We've got to do this now yeah. before things go back to normal. And I think that's what I'm hearing from a lot of people is that there's a huge amount that we can do, but we just got to get going and just do it. Well, listen, good luck with that. But uh, for now, Tina Woods, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode. So thanks again to all my guests who took the time to chat to us today and to the organising team at Mad World for making it happen and allowing us to record the interviews here at the event. Uh, we hope you've got a lot out of this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of mental health and wellbeing in the workplace. So if you'd like to contribute, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn and Instagram pages, which are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app and if you've enjoyed the show please do give us a positive rating and review uh, finally if you would like to get in touch with the show uh, you can do that using the contact form on the website as well or you can connect with me on twitter using at ross goldsmith or you can find me on linkedin but for now thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs> <laughs>